Thank you for this time to gather together as your church, as we prayed. Uh, Lord, we're broken over the situation in our country. Uh, Lord, we mourn with those that are confused and hurting and angry. Lord, we know that you are near to the brokenhearted and you bind up the wounds of those that are hurt. Lord, that your spirit is crushed as you see sin and violence portrayed. Lord, as we have been reading through this book of Judges, a a book full of violence and sin, God, we, we see your grace abound, your mercy and your compassion displayed. And so tonight, God, we pray that that's what we would see is your grace and your love, your mercy and your compassion for broken people. That would be hope for us as we navigate this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we begin week eight of our series through the book of Judges. And we have creatively entitled this series Judges, going through the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And uh, if you've been with us, you've seen many different characters that are coming out of this narrative, some positive, some you want to emulate, and some you want to model your life after, and some not so much. And as we've been saying throughout the series, it's going to get deeper and darker in terms of rebellion and sin, and tonight is no different as we will see. Last week, we ended with the story of Gideon, and Gideon was a man who was kind of a tale of two people. He begun his life in a way that was honorable. You looked at Gideon and you thought to yourself, that is a man that I want to model my life after. That is an example of leadership. That is an example of humility, of recognizing your own weakness and boasting in the strength of God and giving him glory. But Gideon quickly turned to a completely different type of man, one that you would not want to model your life after. You see, last week we saw that Gideon After he has received victories, he allowed success to get to his head and to infiltrate his heart, and he no longer surrendered to God in his mind and his heart, but his heart was surrendered to success instead. He wanted honor and praise and more success, and he felt entitled to glory for himself. His mind was surrendered to God, so he was capable of saying the right thing and doing the right thing in the right moment, but his heart was not surrendered to God. So even when the people came to Gideon and they said, Gideon, we want to make you king, Gideon gives the right response and he says, no, only God is to be king because God has told his people that there is to be no king. I am to be the king of my people and I will deliver you through judges. So he gives the right response, but then immediately after Gideon says, I'm not going to be king, but I want you to treat me like a king. So give me all of your wealth, give me all of your possessions, I'm going to build this luxurious, comfortable life for myself in my hometown, and I'm also going to create what's known as an ephod, which was a breastplate that the high priest would wear, where the people of God in times of crisis would go and they would spin these stones on top of the ephod to help bring discernment to what God is directing them to, and he creates one. You think that's great, but no, it's not, because there's already an ephod in another city So Gideon is not okay with just receiving the wealth and the praise and the honor from others. He also wants to be treated like a God, like a savior. He wants people to come to his town to look to him to deliver them. And he dies, and we read a little bit more about his life 
in that he not only accumulated wealth and he wanted honor and attention and he wanted people to view him as a savior, he was treated like a king, but he also accumulated women for himself. He had many, many, many wives and concubines. He had 70 sons. 70. Can you imagine that? I'm, I guarantee he knew 10 of their names. 70 sons and Israel is kind of in this flux after Gideon dies, and they're trying to figure out what to do, and Gideon has 70 sons, so they're looking to maybe one of these sons, but there's one of them named Abimelech, and Abimelech is an illegitimate son because he is the son of one of the concubines, not one of the wives, and so Abimelech is kind of outcasted from his family. He is overlooked. He is told, you're not going to have the inheritance. You're an illegitimate son, but Abimelech is like his father in that he feels entitled to the inheritance of his father Gideon. He feels entitled to honor and to respect. So what Abimelech does, is he plots to kill all of his brothers, all 70 of his brothers, and he ends up succeeding in killing all of his brothers. Then if you want to know where the state of Israel is, where their mind and their heart is, they say, that's great. Let's make Abimelech king. So in the midst of this, Abimelech kills all of his brothers, and they say, this is a good leader. He kills his whole family. Let's make him king. And Abimelech is not like his father. His father was a man of faith. His mind was surrendered to God, but his heart was struggling with chasing after success. Abimelech is not like that. He is all about himself. He says, oh, you want to make me king? Great. I'll become king. They make him king, and he lasts for three years, and after three years, they get tired of him because he's an insane person, obviously, and after three years, they plot to kill him. They have these robbers, and they're going to figure out a way to capture him and kill him, but Abimelech, he is crafty, and he escapes. After he escapes, and he realizes there's a a large faction of people in Israel that want to kill him, he brings together his own army, and there is a civil war. Now Israel is fighting against itself. And Abimelech is going after towns, and he is fighting. There's violence and war. It's brutal. And then he goes to this town, and there's a big tower. And he's at the base of this tower, and they're fighting to take over the town. And there's a woman up there who looks around, and she grabs a millstone. It's a big stone. And she just throws it out of the window, and it falls down the window of the tower, and it crushes Abimelech's skull. Now, if you already were like, I'm not a fan of Abimelech, you're going to like him even less now. Because he's not dead yet. His head is crushed by the millstone and he's laying there and he says to one of his young soldiers, a young man, and he says, you need to stab me with your sword because I'm going to die and I don't want to be known as a man killed by a woman. Right? Everyone here just wrote a bim like off. Like, we're out. Done with him. So he gets killed and now Israel is a mess. It is... A complete mess. But then we read this really small passage right after the death of Abimelech that there are two judges that come, Tola and Jair. We don't know much about them, but what we can read into the text is that they were people of faith. That their their mind and their heart was surrendered to God because they bring stability and they bring peace. They're able to bring the people together to stop the civil war, to bring stability and peace, and the people of God have now begun once again to worship God with their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength, and things are going well, 
And if you have been with us in this series, you know exactly what you're going to read, the verse that is repeated over and over and over again in this book. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. This is the cycle. If you look on the front of your worship program that's in there, a little small script, there's a hidden cycle inside of that logo. You see, this is the cycle. The people of God, things are going well. There's peace or stability. And God's people say, yeah, we're going to start worshiping these false idols and these false gods again. And then they're oppressed. And then they cry out to God for deliverance. And then God brings the judge and delivers them. This is the cycle time and time and time again. And so you were expecting this. But remember, we've been saying that it's going to get darker It's going to get deeper in the sense of their rebellion. And so we read that not only did they do what was evil inside of the Lord and begin to worship the Baals and the Asheroth, these two idols, it says they also serve the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. They forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They essentially say, give us all the gods. Like, you have some gods, we'll take them, we'll take them, we'll take them. We just need more gods, we need more idols to run after because Baal and Asheroth aren't doing it. We think if we add some more to our plate, then we will receive the outcome and the blessing and the success that we chase after. And you can lock it in, what happens next in the repeated cycle is that they're oppressed by the very nations that they look to for guidance in regards to worship. Every time the people of God choose to run after idols and worship false gods, the very nation that's promoting those idols and false gods to them begin to oppress them. And so we see time and time again that idolatry leads to slavery. Here, it's a, it's a physical slavery, but for us it's true that idolatry leads to slavery of mind and slavery of heart. It enslaves us when you begin to worship after idols and false gods. But there's something else to see here. And it's not only that idolatry leads to slavery, but slavery leads to more idolatry. See, throughout the book, there's something that that jumps into your mind when you're reading it, which is confusing. The people of God begin to worship these idols, and then they get oppressed by those nations. But then it takes them forever to realize their sin and their mistake and their rebellion. At times it takes them 20 years to finally return back to God and to ask for forgiveness and to repent. Here it takes them 18 years. 18 years to return back to God and to ask for forgiveness and for deliverance. Why is that? You would think that after they become oppressed and enslaved, they would think, we've made a big mistake. Should not have run after all these gods. We should have been worshiping God and following after God. Every time we do, there's peace and stability, and then we turn away. We should turn right back, but it takes 18 years. And that's because idolatry leads to slavery, and slavery leads to more idolatry. You see, they viewed their problem as not the fact that they were worshiping after idols, they thought that they weren't worshiping the idols enough or in the right way. And so it takes them 18 years to figure that out. You see, we're no different. 
We have, we have to be careful as we read books like the book of Judges to think, what's wrong with these people? Because we're just like them. This, is a true, this, this cycle is true for us too. Slavery leads to more idolatry because we convince ourselves that the problem is not that we've set up these things as idols in our life. That's not the problem. The problem is that we're not worshiping them enough. We're not sacrificing for them enough. We're not worshiping them in the right way. You see, what an idol is, is any good thing that you make an ultimate thing. It's anything that you have placed your value and your purpose in above God. It's a thing that you have to have to make you happy, to feel that you have made it in life, to feel satisfied. It's a thing that you give all your attention, all your energy, and all of your worship to. It can be good things that you've made ultimate things above God. And we convince ourselves, even when we chase after them, and even when we manufacture idols in our life, that the problem is not that we are worshiping this thing, it's that we're not worshiping it in the right way. Or maybe we need to add a few new idols alongside of it. You see, you may struggle with placing romance in a relationship as an idol in your life. You may have placed your value in a relationship. You may have placed your purpose in finding and developing a relationship. And you will sacrifice whatever it takes to achieve that relationship, to maintain that relationship, to keep that relationship healthy. You will sacrifice your values, you will sacrifice friends, you will sacrifice your faith, you will sacrifice anything for this idol of a relationship. And what happens when that relationship disappoints or that relationship falls apart or there's conflict in that relationship or it's not meeting your expectations in the way that you imagined is not that you think to yourself, and I've made an idol out of romance and a relationship, and I should return back to God and worship him instead. What we typically think is, maybe this is the wrong relationship. Maybe I need someone different. Maybe I need to begin to worship them in a different way that will produce different results. We view the, the problem as the need to worship more or in a different way or to add something different, not that we're actually worshiping something that we've made an idol. We do this with career. How many of us place our value and our purpose and our career and our achievements? And so we will sacrifice anything for our career and to achieve the goals that we set for ourselves. We'll sacrifice our ethics. We'll sacrifice friends. We'll sacrifice our faith. We'll hide our faith, certainly at times. And then as our career disappoints or we don't meet the expectations that we thought, we don't achieve the goals that we thought, we get fired or laid off from a job, we think to ourselves, man, I've made a career an idol. No, we don't think that. I mean, many of us don't think that. We think instead, I need a new job. This job wasn't for me. This boss was oppressive. It was not a good boss. I didn't have any coworkers around me that were inspiring me to grow. They didn't see the potential in me. Maybe I should start my own business. Maybe I should do this. We just got to worship that idol in a different way, in a new way, because idolatry leads to slavery, and slavery leads to more idolatry. Worship more. You see, when you find yourself enslaved to an idol, your first instinct is to think, I need more of it. I need more. The next promotion and the next payday will finally be enough. The next achievement will finally be the one that satisfies me. The next relationship will be the perfect fit. I need more of it. 
And this continues to happen for God's people, both in the book of Judges and for us as we convince ourselves that idols need more worship. And so they begin to add all these gods. Just give us all the gods. We'll take them all. We'll try it out. It takes them 18 years to realize that they've made a mess of things. It was so bad that it said that the people of God were shattered. That was the description of them. They're shattered people. But they return back to God and they return and they say, God, we need your help. We need your deliverance. We need your mercy. And God gives a response that kind of jumps out at you. God says, I will not save you. I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen and let them save you. You're like, whoa, God, (laughs) calm down. Like I thought the cycle was when you cry out to God, God's going to deliver you. And God's like, why don't you go to your like 14,000 gods and see if they can save you? What is God saying here? It's a great quote from Michael Wilcock. He is a scholar and he explains God's response like this. He says that the Lord is saying, I know what this cry of yours is. It's merely a cry for help, which might just as well be addressed to the Baals as to me. You see, the response that God gives to his people here is, I know your heart. I know that the only reason you're crying out to me for deliverance is because you don't like the consequences of your sin. You have no problem with the sin itself. You just don't want the consequences. And so you're treating me like an idol. You're treating me like you can just maybe do something or get something to get a better reward and a better situation. You're not actually having any kind of issue or brokenness over your sin. And this has been a repeated problem with God's people because before God brought Gideon, he brought a prophet to say the same exact thing. That you need to see the brokenness of your condition. You need to see your heart for what it truly is. That it is a factory of idols. That you are sinful. And so God says, I know that you're treating me like one of these idols. You think that if you push the right buttons and say the right thing and make the right sacrifices, then I'm going to give you the right results. But I'm not an idol. I'm a God of grace and wants relationship with you through faith. It's totally different engagement. The people of God hear this response and they actually wake up to it. They actually respond in the right way. Here's what they say. We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. Their response is this. God, you're right. We are broken, we have nothing to offer, we're entitled to nothing, we're asking for your grace, will you save us? You see, this is the right response. Here's what real faith looks like. Real faith looks like this, God, I want to love you and I want to worship you whether or not you give me X, Y, and Z. Here's what false or fake faith sounds like. God, I want to love you and I want to worship you. And I want you to give me X, Y, and Z in response to that. It's a transaction. Or there's one of arriving broken with no sense of entitlement. And the people of God display real faith. They come to God as a God of grace and say, God, we're broken. We have nothing to offer. We need you to fix us. We need you to rescue us. And so God responds as he's faithful to do and he brings a deliverer. And it's an unlikely candidate. It's 
God's MO, he brings an unlikely person, and this guy is Jephthah. And Jephthah is an illegitimate son of a prostitute, and he is kicked out by his family as well. They want nothing to do with him. And so he goes into the wilderness because he's a warrior, and he finds a biblical mafia. He finds an organized crime in the wilderness, and he becomes the Don, the godfather, the big boss of this organized crime. I mean, this is unbelievable, guys. He's in the wilderness. He's the Don of a biblical mafia, okay? And now the people of God are beginning to set themselves up to fight against the Ammonites who have oppressed them. So they're getting the, the, the army together, and they think to themselves, who's going to lead us? And so, I don't know who it was, but someone's like, what about Big Boss in the Woods? And so they're like, yeah, let's get Jephthah. That guy's crazy out there. So they go and they get him. They say, we got an army. We're going to fight against the Ammonites. God is going to give us victory. We have responded to him. We, we realize that we're entitled to nothing, but God has told us that he is faithful, that he's going to bring us victory and deliverance. And Jephthah, will you lead us? And he's like, so now you want me. Before, no one wanted anything to do with me because I'm an illegitimate son and because my mom is a prostitute, you kicked me out into the woods. But now, because I'm a warrior and I'm the dawn, you come to me. And they talk with him, and, and eventually, Jephthah says, okay, I'll lead God's people. He's a good leader at the beginning. He says, listen, let's not go to war right away. Instead, let's try to negotiate peace. And so he goes, and he negotiates with the Ammonites, and he starts with this argument. It's like a historical argument. He says, hey, listen, let's kind of walk it back in the past. You guys are upset at us because you believe some things about how we enter the land, and that's not true. So let's kind of like clear up the past. Maybe that will make things better. We could all settle as one. We don't got to fight. We don't got to kill each other. The king of the Ammonites is like, nah, son, it's not going to work. So he's like, okay, what about a theological argument? Let's talk about God. But then it's really confused. And I'm sure the king of the Ammonites was like, man, you're making no sense here because he's not debunking their gods. He's actually mixing some pagan ideas with the God that he worships. He's like, bro, you're making no sense. So you got one more argument. He's like, yeah, legal precedent. Let's go with that. When we came in, we didn't attack you. You didn't attack us. So what's the deal? Why are you attacking and oppressing us? What's the precedent here? What gives you grounds for this? And the, the king of the Ammonites is like, man, we're going to wipe you off the face of the earth. We're not about peace. We don't need any kind of arguments. You're not a very good negotiator. So war is inevitable. And then we read this. The spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And as you read this, you know that this means that God's people are going to be victorious. Because every time the Spirit of the Lord is upon a leader, upon a judge that God raises up, incredible things happen. There is great victory that comes. And so you're like, I can't wait to see how this is going to unfold, how God is going to use Jephthah and how they're going to be freed from the Ammonites and their oppression of 18 years where the people felt shattered. But then right after this, he makes this vow to God. It's a foolish vow, and it's unnecessary. He says, if you, God, will give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, 
shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. This is like really out of left field. God has never asked for a vow to be made. He's never asked for a sacrifice. But yet Jephthah is like, listen, if you will give me victory and allow me to lead your people victorious over the Ammonites, when I return home, whatever comes out of the house, I will offer to you as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice. Why is he doing this? You see, it's because though Jephthah is a person of faith, his mind is surrendered to God in faith, but his heart, just like Gideon, is compromised. He has begun to assume all of the different values and messages of culture, and it has really affected his heart where he doesn't know how to approach God appropriately. And so he doubts that God is actually going to give him victory, even though the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And he should know and trust that God is going to give him victory. And other people are speaking this to him as well as they have seen God be faithful time and time again. He doesn't believe it. So he is treating God like a pagan idol. He's treating God like the people used to treat all these gods of the Philistines and Ammonites and Sidon and Moab and Baal. You see, during this time when you were seeking a great reward or a great victory, if you were worshiping some of these different idols, the greatest sacrifice would have been something precious to you. And so he's coming to God, he's saying, I, I, God, I'm going to trust you. If you're going to give me victory, I'm going to offer something to you. He's saying, if you give me something, I'll give you something. It's this works-based religious approach to God where he's trying to impress God and, and buy God off. God, we have a, a transaction here. He makes this foolish vow. He goes to war and he's victorious. Why? Because the spirit of the Lord is upon him. And God has chosen to use Jephthah to be the judge to deliver God's people. There's stability and there's peace and there's cheering and celebrating in the towns and villages as they're finally free from 18 years of oppression. And Jephthah goes home. And he comes back to his house exhausted and tired and he's walking up to the door of his house and outruns his daughter. His only daughter. His vow says that the first thing to walk out of the house, he will sacrifice to God. And his daughter walks out. You see, you think to yourself, okay, wait, what's going to happen now? He ends up sacrificing his daughter. He kills his daughter to uphold his vow. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. This is when you have like a new conversation with God, right? God, um... I thought it was going to be like the dog at worst. That still would have been rough. We still would have been like, ooh, you know, all the dog people in here. A cat next, no offense, but like a rat. I was really hoping for a rat to run out, and then that was like an easy thing. We're all cool with a rat, but God, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice my daughter. Are you okay with that? He, sh he knows that actually God says that human sacrifice is detestable to him. Deuteronomy 12, it specifically says in the law of God that God detests human sacrifice. 
So we think to ourselves, well, why did he follow through with it, knowing that God does not desire human sacrifice? He views it as detestable and evil, and yet he follows through. Well, here's where it gets really dark. Jephthah was assuming the entire time that he was going to sacrifice a human being. You see, during this time period, there are no inside animals. There's no dogs inside. There's no cats inside. If there's rats, they get them out. Like, there's no domesticated animals. So Jephthah is assuming that there's going to be a human being that's going to walk out of that door, but he doesn't think it's going to be his daughter. He thinks it's going to be one of his servants. As he arrives home from war, one of the servants would have come out and given him some water and taken some of his luggage giving him some clean water to wash his face and his hands. The whole time he is assuming that he is going to kill one of his servants as an offering to God, but ends up being his daughter. I told you it was getting darker. Why would he do this? Why would he ignore God's law in Deuteronomy 12 that God detests and views human sacrifice as evil? Why would he make this vow? You see, his heart's compromised. He has allowed all of the cultural norms and truth and ways of worship to infiltrate his heart and to affect his approach to God. He is treating God like a pagan idol, and he believes that God desires the ultimate sacrifice. He's ignoring God's law. He's ignoring God's truth, and he's treating God like he would treat Baal or Asheroth or the Ammonite gods or the Philistine gods. He's trying to buy God off by saying, listen, God, are you impressed with me? Look, I'm, I'm willing to go to the greatest length for you. But he doesn't understand that God doesn't function like an idol. You can't buy God off. You can't impress God with your sacrifice. There's a passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that says that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. But we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, not to impress him or to buy him off. Or to say, God, look how much I'm sacrificing to you. Now you're going to give me what I want, right? No, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you know what it says after that? As a spiritual act of worship. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We sacrifice for God's kingdom, for his glory, and for his truth as an act of worship in response to God's grace and what he has done for us. Not to impress him, because we know that we can't impress him. As a response to grace. And this is what is so sad about Jephthah, is he does not understand grace. He understands works and transactional worship, but he doesn't understand grace. He doesn't believe that God is actually gracious. That God will really keep his promises, whether or not, Jephthah is the honorable and flawless leader. He thinks that he has to sacrifice for God. He doesn't get grace. And see, when you don't understand grace, there's tragic consequences. Tragic consequences when you don't understand grace. And it's so sad because Jephthah should have known that God had already promised to save his people. But because he doesn't understand grace and his heart is compromised, he doesn't approach God that way. So you think to yourself, what are we to take from this story? I think it's this. 
that we are more affected by culture than we fail to admit, and we are less affected by the Bible than we fail to admit. We are more affected by what culture preaches to us every moment of every day, every time we pick up our phones, every time we walk down the street. We're more affected by culture and the negative aspects of culture than we fail to admit, and we are less affected by biblical truth and God's word than we fail to admit. You see, we look at Jephthah and we're like, what is wrong with this guy? What a fool. How can he overlook God's very apparent truth that he views human sacrifice as evil and detestable? How can he overlook that? How can he overlook God's grace and faithfulness time and time and time again to his people when they cry out to him and when the spirit of the Lord is upon a leader? How can he ignore that? How can he allow all of these pagan beliefs and practices to affect his heart and his mind and to to allow him to approach God like a pagan idol? What is wrong with him? He is a fool. But you have to take a moment and with humility look at yourself and say, "Are, are there things that I ignore? Are there things that I overlook about God? Are there things that I doubt? about his character and his grace, his faithfulness and his promises? Do I ever actually approach God in this kind of transactional works-based way where I make foolish vows, like, God, I'm gonna do this for you, or are you gonna do this for me? Do we allow culture to affect us more than we think, and are we not as affected by God's word as we wanna believe? I think we have blind spots just like Jephthah. Maybe not as severe as we see here, but blind spots. Have you ever asked yourself this question, what are my major blind spots? Don't ask yourself that question because you won't know because it's a blind spot, right? Like you're gonna keep asking it and you're gonna be like, I have none, wow. (laughs) But see, this is why this right here is so important. A family of God's people committed to one another, willing to get to know each other, to share doubts, to be open, to share struggles. It's why we believe that community group is so important. It's not just because like every church does community group, so we got to have that program. So it's there if you want it. No, like we believe in it because we believe that we are called to be together in relationship with one another, sharing doubts, sharing struggles, discussing what we're being tempted by, what we're facing at work, the decisions that we're weighing so that we can find trusted friends that we can go to and say, be honest, what are my major blind spots? Here's my challenge to you. This week, go to a trusted friend and say, what are my major blind spots? Tell me, don't hold back. Go to a person that believes in faith in Jesus Christ, has the same spiritual beliefs as you and is connected where you trust their wisdom and ask them that question. And if you don't have anyone to ask, here's my charge to you, join a community group. This is not, I'm, I'm, it's not a shameless plug, I'm telling you for real. You need people in your life where you can ask that question. What are my major blind spots? Where have I ignored God's word and his truth and accepted cultural norms and cultural quote-unquote truth? Where has that affected my heart? Where's the compromise in me? Tell me. I'm willing to take it. That's the first 
action step because I think the reality is is that we are more like Jephthah than we failed to admit, than we want to admit. But this isn't the, the biggest takeaway is that we should be asking the question, what are our major blind spots? That's important. The second one is that we have a tendency to disbelieve in grace, that there's a disbelief of grace that you see here in the life of Jephthah, and that is the most tragic, to doubt the grace of God. The very first lie of human history is to doubt God's grace and goodness to you. Here's the very first lie in all of human history. The The serpent says to Adam and Eve, hey, listen, God isn't interested in your best. He's not interested in giving you good things. He's actually restricting them from you. It's not a God of grace. It's the first lie, and we allow it to affect us in our core. We try to control God. We try to buy God off, try to impress God. But God cannot be impressed or bought off because we struggle with just trusting that God is actually gracious gracious, and our blessings are secured because of his promises, not because of our effort and our righteousness. And so we make foolish vows to God. We try to impress him. We treat God like an idol. But God is not an idol. He's a God of grace who freely saves sinners like you and like me based on nothing. We come to him broken. God, I have nothing. I'm entitled to nothing. I'm asking for you to fix me, to give me grace and strength and guidance. We are all like Japheth in that we got a little gangster in us. We have a little gangster in us. Cornel West is a philosopher and political activist. He said this in a recent interview. People know that I've called brother Donald Trump a gangster over and over again. And I say that because there's a gangster inside of me that I have to conquer every day. You see, we all know that there is a gangster inside of us that's wanting to rebel, that's wanting to reject, that's wanting to control, that's wanting to impress, that's wanting to buy God off. And we try to control it and we try to think, okay, God, I know that you're not okay with that, so maybe if I can kind of tame the gangster and then approach you in a worthy way and we'll have this kind of transaction where if I do this, you'll give me that, we can make a vow, we can do a whole thing. But God is a God of grace. Here's how it's underscored. There's a a book in the New Testament, it's called the Book of Hebrews, and chapter 11 is known as like the Faith Hall of Fame. It lists all these incredible people of faith. Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Rahab and Joshua And then it says this, what more shall I say for the time will fail me to tell you of Gideon? You're like, oh, I don't know. Barak, Samson, Jephthah. David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice obtained promises. Jephthah. It's in the faith hall of fame. If you read that and you're like, what? What? If that shocks you that he's here, then you need to reevaluate grace. See, Jephthah is not an honorable person, made evil decisions. His heart was compromised because of what he allowed to affect him, and he approached God in the wrong way. He is by no means an example, but he was a person of faith. And God's grace is big enough to cover the mistakes and the sin of Jephthah. You don't have to be the most honorable, you know, noteworthy, look at my life, I make no mistakes person to receive. No, grace is unmerited favor. 
that is received through faith in Christ, even if you are a gangster, like Jephthah. There's a verse that I love in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, speaks about Jesus, and it says, for from his fullness we have all received, say it with me, grace upon grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have received grace upon grace because of the fullness of Jesus? Nothing has to do with you. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, faith in him, you have received grace. Do you believe that God has poured his grace out upon you even though you know that there's a lot of gangster in you? There's a lot of rebellion. There's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of compromise in your heart and yet God is pouring his grace out over you because of Christ. Do you believe that you don't have to buy God off, but he's just a God of grace? You see, because he is. The fullness of Jesus through faith in who Jesus is, God's grace is big enough to cover every mistake and every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. And we are to approach him like God's people did when they finally woke up to that, which is, God, we're messed up. We're broken. We're entitled to nothing, but we ask for your mercy and we ask for your grace, and we ask for your compassion and your guidance in our life, and God responds every single time. You see, so it's okay to go to a friend and say, tell me my major blind spots, because I know I have them. And I want you to tell me because I want to follow God more closely. I want to worship and love God in the right way. Not to get something from God, but just because he's worthy of it, because he is a God of grace. can't disbelieve in God's grace. It is the most powerful thing in the world. And right after this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, the very beginning of the next chapter says this, and this is my charge to you, what I want to leave you with. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, not looking to ourselves, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That is the most important line there at the the end. Look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of your faith. You're not the perfecter of your faith, nor are you the founder of your faith. Jesus is. God's grace to you. So look to him in your brokenness, in your weakness, with your blind spots, and be humble enough, motivated by God's grace, to go to somebody this week and say, tell me my blind spots. I know I'm compromising. I want to run the race. Will you pray with me? God, I confess to you that I run my own race a lot. Lord, I pray that you would challenge me to to see your grace as enough, as sufficient, that I would see your love as unbelievable, that it would be the motivating factor in my life. Lord, I pray for all of us that this week, as we walk out into our careers, as we navigate difficult relationships, God, as we face the same temptations we face week in and week out, that we would look to you, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, that we would run to you, 
Not believing, God, that we have to impress you or that we can buy you off, but God, knowing that you are enough and that you love us just as we are. So will we return to you in that way so that we can run the race and we can throw aside everything that clings so closely? Lord, motivate us and move us in that way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.